Welcome to the Jesuit Institute Hour on Radio Veritas. My name's Francis Correa. And this morning we will be talking about various things. We'll begin by looking at what's happening in the world today in an interview with Father Russell Pollitt and Father Anthony Egan from the Jesuit Institute. There we'll be talking about what the Pope is thinking about in terms of the annulment process. We'll also be thinking a little about the Church's response to the Orlando shootings. And finally, thinking a little about what's going on in our own country in Tswane at the moment. Then we'll also be talking to Puleng Matsuneng, who is also of the Jesuit Institute, about the innovative work that she is doing in the townships around Johannesburg and Tswane. And finally, we'll be just spending a little bit of time thinking about God's call in our own life and how we respond to God given the circumstances in which we find ourselves. We're going to move now to the interview with Father Russell and with Anthony Egan. This morning I'm talking to Father Russell Pollitt and Father Anthony Egan, both of the Jesuit Institute, and we're going to be talking about what's going on a little bit in the church and in the world at the moment. I thought this morning we'd begin by talking about what Pope Francis spoke about last week when he said that some Catholic marriages may not actually be valid and what that might mean in terms of the annulment process and what was he actually talking about. We'll also talk a little bit about the shootings in Orlando and the church's response or failure to respond to those shootings. And finally, we'll talk a little closer to home about what's been going on in Swane and the violence that we're seeing there as we run up towards the elections. So, Anthony, good morning. Good morning. I'd just like to start with a question. What do you think Pope Francis was talking about when he said that some Catholic marriages may not be valid? And what does that mean in terms of our understanding of the annulment process? I think there are a number of things going on there. The first thing is I think he's trying to do what they call a reductio ad absurdum, where you take a position and you take it to its logical conclusion. And what I think he's saying to us is the way in which canon law on marriage is defined can be defined in a certain way that marriages that we would consider to be valid legally may not be. For example, if you look at a a marriage where, you know, it's free consent between two people, that's one of the canonical requirements. If there isn't that, it's invalid. How well do people understand that notion of consent? Even having been through engaged encounter and marriage preparation, and even if they've been shown a copy of the canon law about it, would they understand it? Because, you know, a piece of law is always interpreted. And I think what he's saying to us is be careful how you just rigorously focus on law, because law may indeed simply create more complication. So is he saying in a way that we have to be careful about living in an idealized world, living in a world of, of ideas, of law, of, of things that are perfect, as opposed to living in a world that is rooted in, in the lived reality of people's lives? Is, is that some of what's going on here? Yeah. I think what he's doing is he's trying to get us back to an understanding of canon law in general, that canon law doesn't exist for itself, but it exists as a service to the pastoral well-being of the church, whether that is the rights of lay people in the church, the rights of priests in the church, laws governing marriage and everything else. I think he's saying let's focus on the pastoral aspect and recognize that perhaps pastoral reality is more complicated 
than a set of laws that are often rigorously and unreflectively applied. So for the ordinary lay married Catholic out there, what does this mean about their marriage? Well, I think it means whatever their marriage means to them. If they truly believe their marriage is valid and they they have this sense of a valid marriage, even if they may not have been perfectly legal in the sense of full consent, the lived experience of the marriage, which they see as truly a real marriage, is the real marriage. But it does give, I think, a bit more space for interpretation where there is a crisis in a marriage, where there's perhaps a sense that maybe we entered into the marriage without thinking it through, without fully consenting, where, for example, people didn't realize that you have to make that full consent and any kind of pressure on somebody to get married, whether it's social pressure, family pressure, things like that, actually makes it invalid. Okay, so that's very interesting. It's kind of picking up the idea that I can't say, oh, well, I was 18 and pregnant and therefore I had to get married because what would my parents say? That is a classic ground for annulment. There's an element of coercion and an element of pressure. And that that actually, if you look at canon law, you can actually see that as one of the grounds. Okay. One of the things that strikes me in this whole uh, debate has been that, you know, people are worrying about whether their marriages are valid or not. I mean, this law and what the Pope is saying really applies to people who have found themselves in trouble. Mm. It's not judging marriages where people are living them and happily living them. It's not saying to people, go and doubt your marriage. It's really for marriages that are in trouble. The Pope is trying to help people who find themselves in difficulty. Precisely. I mean, you think of someone, for example, let's use the example of someone, a couple who find that they're pregnant and they decide to get married, they get married. Mm-hmm. And they live happily ever after. They don't doubt for a moment that the marriage was valid, even though technically it's invalid. It doesn't mean that because it wasn't fully according to the law when you entered into the marriage, that it suddenly becomes an invalid marriage. Therefore, you're not actually married. Okay. I think that's the important thing to distinguish, I think, Russell. And I think that's the intention you know, Precisely. once again, the intention of the sacrament is that, you know, I intended to do this. Yeah. I, I did this in the best way that I could. Yeah. And therefore, I married. Mm. Yeah. Precisely. And I think that's, that, that is what I think he's trying to say to us. I think he's saying be wary of this kind of legal rigorism, which often doesn't help us. And perhaps he's made people a little nervous because they think... If I'm not validly married according to canon law, then am I living in sin? No, you're not. So there's something here, I think, as you're talking, the thing that's in my mind is that sense of all sacraments are an outward sign of an inward grace. Exactly. And, and so if the inward grace is, is active, if, if there's a sense that the marriage is, is leading to growth, to life, to deepening life in Christ for both partners, then there's no reason to drought the validity of the marriage. But when the marriage, when there is no sense of an inward grace, that's when you begin to to wonder about what's going on in terms of validity. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think it can start out being a grace-filled event, process, and then at times it could it could go wrong. And then the question you ask yourself is, is it irresolvable 
or is it something that can be resolved through marriage therapy, things like that? Mm. And that's, I think, a different thing. That's a pastoral issue. I think another thing we have to take into account is the Pope is really talking about an era where we live in where the the kind of common wisdom is that marriage is not for life. Mm. And so if people enter into a marriage in a social culture where marriage is not for life, the Pope is basically saying they don't intend then what the church intends either. And therefore, mm. there might be a problem understanding the church's intention. Yeah. No, I think that's true because I think the culture has shifted. In fairness, let's remember that the average life of a marriage until the 19th century was about 25 years. Because of um, early death. Early deaths, deaths in childbirth. I mean, I had a relative who went through three wives. And none of them he divorced. They all died before him. Mm. And that was a very common thing. So marriage for life was 20 years or 25 years. Now, 60 years, 80 years, people perhaps are just afraid of that idea of that kind of long-term commitment. And, yeah, there's a kind of cultural problem there that we haven't even started to look at theologically and pastorally. And that was the big thing at the Synod was, I think, for uh, a real examination of our understanding of marriage to look back at its roots but to try to situate it in the circumstances that people find themselves now. Mm, exactly. I mean, you were there, so you, you, you saw a lot of it. But, and that's precisely the challenge, I think. To kind of think about marriage is situated in the culture in which we find ourselves. Yeah. On that note, I want to change the topic slightly and talk a little bit about what's been happening in the United States, the massacre at Orlando, and the church's response to that, and some of the critiques that are coming up within the church about the church's response, about the American bishop's response to that. I think that um, the response has been pretty poor, to be honest. Uh, Archbishop of Chicago, Supic, was the first one to speak out where he mentioned right up front that this is a terrible thing that's happened in the gay community. Um, and then Lynch, who's the Bishop of St. Petersburg in Florida, came out saying, sadly, sometimes religious attitudes have perpetuated the situation. But most of the other American bishops who spoke out after this tragedy didn't even mention the fact that this happened in a gay bar or that it was for gay people. They just said people who were affected by this. So I think the church's response um, hasn't been what it should be. There's been a lot of critique about that. What I do think is that it has raised a number of questions around the way that we do talk about people who are gay, who are homosexual. And my thesis is that our religious language has got a role to play, and therefore we need to take some responsibility in Christianity for what has happened because we have perpetuated certain attitudes towards uh, gay people. Yes, even though the perpetrator apparently was Muslim, the use of religious language and the theological assumptions that we make are things that have to be looked at. For example, when we start talking about people being disordered or them having a disorder, that immediately makes them other, it makes them suspect, it makes them dangerous. And that is a kind of, you know, an invite to any crazy person. This time it was a Muslim. Next time maybe a Catholic or a Baptist or whatever to go on a rampage. And that but, you, but I I just, think, Sorry, I think it's more than that as well because I think that, you know, 
it's his invitation to do that, but I think it's this, it's this standpoint that religion has that says something about the fact that gay people are somehow do not fall into into the realm of creation as they should. It's somehow a choice. It's somehow an abomination. I mean, I think that, you know, if you look at parishes, for example, we have outreach groups for all sorts of things. We don't have outreach groups for people who are gay and struggling with their sexual orientation in a society that tells them, for example, oh, well, there must be something wrong with you, or whatever mm. the case is. And therefore, I think that, you know, it's beyond just language. It's, 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 it's a whole culture that has, to be, that has to be counteracted. Yes, it's a culture based upon a theology. And the theology is based on a theory called natural law. And in particular, the natural law theory that says that things must conform with nature. And the nature of human beings is that they are heterosexual because we presume, of course, that every sexual act should be open to procreation. Now, the problem with this natural law theory is, if we say natural law is natural according to what we observe in nature, what we forget is there are 2,000 higher species of animals, the ones closest to us on the evolutionary scale, who have minorities who are same-sex oriented and actually engage in same-sex activity. Which does kind of throw a spoke in the natural law theory. Nobody wants to talk about that. <laughs> That's true. I, 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 just want to, I just want to close this down quickly and spend the last few moments chatting about what's going on here in South Africa and the violence that we're seeing erupting in Tswane at the moment, the, the killing of an ANC person, the, um, the fires, various things that are happening. And what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? I think quite simply what's happening is that we are seeing the result of the ANC moving into factionalism. It's been coming up for a lot, a long, long number of years and rival factions fighting over who will have the mayoral candidate. And I think that's what Chwani is all about. And if we look at it, it's not just Chwani. It's been going on in the Eastern Cape. It's been going on in the Free State, in the Northwest, in Natal, all over the place. I think that... Um you know, we really had a turning point in South African politics. The problem with a lot of, of, of this violence that we're seeing as well is pointing to the fact that it's happening because people are losing or stand the chance of losing their slice of the cake. And so there's an economic motive behind this. So there's power and there's greed. But I also think there's an economic motive because if your person who's the mayoral candidate who you stood by is not given the candidacy, what happens is you're not going to be made a ward manager or whatever the case is, and therefore you stand to lose. You'll be without a job. In the Philippines, they call it pork barrel politics. It basically who gets the pork barrel distributes the pork, and so you have to have your people there so that you get your share of the pork. And I would say to South Africans generally, and especially to to Catholics, you know, we have to think very carefully about how we want to hold people accountable, how we want to hold our politicians accountable. We're talking about going to the polls and holding them accountable there, but I, I feel that there are other ways we need to start to think of of holding politicians um, accountable. And you're really talking here about developing a strong, uh, good citizenship amongst our people, a strong interactive citizenry that are challenging politicians, and they're also not naive. I, I always remember the, the sense that for... For us who go to the polls, it can be about idealism, it can be about about party slogans, whatever. But for the politicians, it's always about, will I have my job after this election? Mm. Absolutely. And I think that that is part of the problem. Um, so I think we need to think quite deeply because it's not just a case of 
saying, okay, well, you know, when August comes, we'll go to the polls and we'll vote for this one, that one, and the other. This is going to be an ongoing problem that we need to start to say. We're not going to replace one bunch of corrupt politicians with another and have the cycle repeat itself. We need to find other ways of holding people accountable and pushing them hard, outing them when these kinds of things happen. We want to know who's behind this violence. We want to know who spiked this violence. We want to know you know, which councillors are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And we want to hold them accountable in very many different ways, not just three or four years when it comes to uh, elections. That sounds amazing. So thank you, both of you, for talking to me this morning. And we'll see you again next week. Thank you, Francis. Thank you. So we've been talking to Father Anthony Egan and to Father Russell Pollitt of the Jesuit Institute. And we've just been talking about what's going on in the country at the moment, what's going on in the world. You're listening to the Jesuit Institute Hour on Radio Veritas. If you'd like to phone in, the studio line is 011-452-7115 or you can SMS us on 41809. One of the great saints of the 20th century, Blessed Mother Teresa of Calcutta, will be canonized on the 4th of September this year by Pope Francis in Rome. And you could be there. Stand a chance to win this once-in-a-lifetime experience to accompany me, Father Emil, to her canonization in the Radio Veritas Rome and Assisi draw of 2016. The prize this year is valued at nearly 80,000 rand and includes an eight-day pilgrimage to Rome and Assisi from the 2nd to the 11th of September for two people. The prize covers flights, transfers, accommodation, breakfast, dinners and more. Tickets for the draw cost a mere 300 rand and only 2,000 are available, so don't miss out. SMS Rome and your name now to 41809. That's Rome and your name to 41809. And we'll call you back with our banking details. And remember, all the proceeds go to Radio Veritas. SMSs cost one rand fifty and do not constitute an entry.
the Jesuit Institute R on Radio Veritas. We've just been listening to Marty Hagen's All Are Welcome. Now we're going to have a bit of a conversation with Puleng Matsaneng, also from the Jesuit Institute, on the innovative work that she is doing in Ignatian spirituality in the townships. Good morning, Puleng. Good morning, Francis, and uh, to all Radio Veritas listeners. How are you this morning? Well, um, good, except for this chilly weather. <laughs> <laughs> yes, more difficult to find God in the cold, I find. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, Puleng, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the work that you've been involved in at the moment. I know you've been doing a lot of stuff in Atridgeville and in Mamalodi. Could you just tell us a little bit about what it is that you've been up to? Well, it's quite exciting. Um one of the things, some years ago, I think it could be 10 years now, um, was to look at the Ignatian spirituality and inculturating it for townships. Mm-hmm. And just from beginning, that worked well. Um, so one of the things that I do, and not only me, but with a team of many other people, including Jesuit staff members helping me, giving me ideas, um, was um, the weeks of prayer that I, with that team and, as I mentioned, team of volunteers, um, we do weeks which we call the Salisa Weeks, 
those are really looking at some kind of 18th annotation. I know that would be another language that I'm speaking, but <laughs> doing or, yeah. Keep so, on so just tell us, what's an 18th annotation, Puleng? Um, these are notes that we, or that Ignatius wrote for us in the exercises for people in who are busy, I think that's one of the other things, to use them. And we use those notes in parishes. And something out of those notes has been written for them to pray and to reflect and also to notice what is happening in their own lives daily by reflecting. Um, Taking those notes, I had to inculturate them and to make them for the people to understand what Ignatius was saying to them or what Ignatius was saying to us mm-hmm. um, in those notes. So that's one other area that I do. And there's also the training of people. I just, so I, there's also a hope. Yeah, of training others to do also, what you do. We also need to train others to train others. So this work has been training others, and others are training others. So one of the um, programs that it's called, it's a training for us, it's called Ngihamban and Gold. So the first one was to Salesa, so it's a parish retreat for everyone in the parish. And then later on we go to the parish and recruit people to be trained, to be trained in the Ignatian way of praying or way of proceeding. And then those people also train others. So the whole idea is to grow this work. So the start was in Soweto some few years ago. And Soweto people went to train people in Tembisa in the Ignatian spirituality. And Tembisa people went to train <laughs> Pretoria people. So the work is going in. We went to Southville, Atrashville. And so now we are in Manilodi. So we are busy. Um, with specialists, and next year we'll be training many lady people. Wow! So there's a real sense of it having spread out. I want to just it has. I want to just tease out a little bit. I know, I know, I've heard you before speak about um, the importance of storytelling and of giving people space to share, and and I wonder if there's you know that sense of of what you're doing as you try to enculturate this that you're bringing something of a an African. Um, awareness of story and African awareness of community into the process that might be a bit different to some of the more Western things that Ignatius wrote about? Oh, yeah, it's true. Um, well, firstly, I had to go through the Ignatian spirituality or Ignatian, the work of Ignatius. And after going through that work, I had questions for myself. And those questions were, will this work for Africa or will this work for townships? And that was important for me to, to look at that. And one of those other things that I picked up, as you say that there's also, I also had to look at storytelling, the importance of people sharing their stories and reflecting on their stories. Storytelling has so many things. Um, people speak about their own dreams and just to give space for people to talk about their own dreams. The symbols that people... Um, Look at and could reflect, and those important symbols 
that could be a tree, that, you know, just anything that people look, that could also be in nature, um, their own culture, and just to understand where they come from, the rituals, and not also to confuse what is culture or what are their rituals, and also coming from the background of who Ignatius was, where we take this Ignatian spirituality. Another importance was to look at the whole thing about time, <laughs> which always made me, you know, oh, okay, I'm in a different setting now. I know that people from the townships, uh, you know, they want more time. Um, I have to understand all those things. So, you know, it was getting more, I became more open to understanding. And not to say because I, I didn't know that. I'm also part of um, township culture, township people. Um, a bit of me has a bit of uh, farm life. And so I just knew these things. And just to explore and uh, confirm, and also confirm with the exercises or with the work of the Ignatian spirituality. Mm. Stories were also important in that um, they were not just family stories, but there were also stories about issues of the country. So people share as open as they can, and also allowing to listen to people as they share that. But at the end, it's not just sharing um, and living that in a, some kind of a vacuum, but also understanding and coming to get um, in touch of God and understanding who God is for them. And so that was um, creation of, or the creation of things like the Saleta, Gihamba, Ngozi. Um, that helped um, for people to see that. Right, so there was a real sense of, of kind of I love the sense you talk about of you having gone into Ignatian spirituality yourself, having made the exercises, having having really learnt about them at depth in a very in a very Western way, um, and then changing your understanding of them, discovering a more authentic for yourself African approach, and now disseminating that to others, teaching that to other people, so that, that so that you really have become a cultural bridge. It seems to me in this in this process. Yeah, I I think in both I can say yes and could also say no. Um, I'm also learning from them, so we are all sort of bridges. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've learned a lot from people. Um, they inform me. I also inform them. Um, and also just how sometimes they look at the image of God and who is God for them, you know, just to learn from that. So, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Okay. I wondered, when you were talking about this, I wondered if there was a particular story you would like to tell, maybe a moment, something that may have happened in one of the recent Tzotzeletsas you've done, just something where you thought, ah, oh, this is a... This is an amazing moment of encounter between one person and the group or between a person and God that was shared. Something that might inspire the people listening to to think about maybe coming on at Sotsaletsa themselves. Um, I think the most uh, recent one 
I don't know if it will fit, but it, you know, it's, it's part of the process. Um, and I'm not saying from the solicitor is not there. Um, maybe I'll give two. Um, one of them was in Sicilia. The, the most recent one I did was in Bloemfontein. Mm-hmm. And just for, you know, I remember starting that group. And one of, the, one of the people who came was an older lady. And when she arrived, she, she was a bit late, uh, like a few minutes late. So because I always start on time. Mm-hmm. And I think she was a bit irritated when the group was big and she was sort of sitting at the back. And she started saying to me, I don't hear, I don't hear. And I was like, oh, what is happening? And I said, come for, come this way and, and sit here. And that was the first day. But the later days, I said, why is she going to understand what we are talking about when we look at things like, well, we need to pray, we need to notice, we need to reflect. Will she understand all those things? But just the gift of the Ignatian spirituality, that older lady was one of the best people in the group. Mm-hmm. She understood, or she, she, she had an understanding of the here and now in her life. And that, I could see that Ignatian spirituality, using the 18th annotation, as I spoke about the notes earlier on, is another gift for just everyone who is there. Whether in this moment of those laws, whether illiterate or literate, it just works because it's the here and now. But another. Um, Let me just. Not so I just want to stay with that for a moment. The question. Yeah, I just, I just like that sense of in the here and now, that sense of of God active and present in the reality of people's lives and. Exactly. And. and was there a sense of her discovering that, or was there a sense that she'd known that all along, the kind of sense of God who speaks to us through the concrete reality of our current experience? It was, it was her discovering it in that week. Ah, and kind of noticing it for the first, recognizing that God can be at work in, in the stuff of our life. Yeah, um, because I, I thought, oh, she, you know, maybe she's going to struggle with it, but no, she kept on saying, I hear what God is saying to me now. I hear, I hear. Mm. And yeah, that was a light for for her and, and also for me just to see mm. that taking place. Wow, that's an amazing experience, Paleng. And you were going to tell us about another story as about, well. Uh, yeah, I think, I, I, think another, I, think, I think another one that just recently, recently happened was someone giving giving me an image, and in that image, he was explaining desolation. Mm-hmm. But he was explaining des- desolation using um, the images or the symbols, I would say. And he said to me, I went, and during that contemplation, I saw a crawl. And this was a cow's crop. And he said, there were no cows. And there was just nothing. And it was just empty. Mm-hmm. And I could see the emptiness in me. Mm. And just, you know, all those images that people can use, something that is near and understandable for people, you know, something that I understand mm. and that makes my prayer daily. Or help me to see my prayer. 
And you could just say, I know I was in desolation. Mm. And there's something so powerful about using those kind of very earthy images, images from people's lives. I mean, we see how even today, 2,000 years later, Jesus' images, you know, his image of the mustard seed or his image of the, the mm. yeast in the dough, they still speak to our heart because they're still, we still understand them, that there's something really um, powerful about a good image that, that, that bypasses our need to rationally describe something but speaks directly to our heart. Yeah, and how we can grow with those images as long as we allow them to work now. So we, we're kind of coming to the end of this pulling, but I just, I just have a, a question. If you were to say, what is your, what is your one hope for Tzotzeletsa? What is your, if you could have a, you know, if you could say to everyone in the country, my one hope for this program that I've developed, <laughs> what would it be? Um, I think, is it one hope? Or maybe anyway, it can be two or three. Yeah, <laughs> even if I say one hope or hope. Um, just to see the change in people. Uh-huh. That was my one prayer. That um, the Ignatian spirituality, I believe, has changed me. And I also believe that it will change others. And just to see that change in others that has taken place has been such a great thing for me. Uh-huh. Um, and just for them every day to say, I want to grow in this. And I've seen that not only that 2,000 years, the scriptures were there for us, or Christ was there for us, but this is still alive even today. And so my hope, it continues to say, I just want people to receive this change or to get this change or to make this desolator or just ignition spirituality for them. And so as to grow and develop and move on in their lives and just know what God wants for, from them. So you're talking there about a change that's really a change for hope, a change for, for, for discerning God's will in their life, but, but also something about hope, I think. Yeah. And that, that it seems to me, is always, is always valuable. Well, Palang, thank you, thank you very much for coming on the show today and for giving us your time. We've been talking to Palang Matsuneng, who heads up the spirituality work of the Jesuit Institute in the townships and around the country. You're on Radio Veritas, listening to me, Francis Correa. Um, we're on the Jesuit Institute Hour. And if you'd like to phone in and talk to us, our studio line is 011-452-7115, or you can SMS us on 41809.
Blessed are you who stand beside us as we enter new ventures, for our failures will be outweighed by the times we surprise ourselves and you. Blessed are those who forget my disability of the body and see the shape of my soul and strength of my mind. Blessed are those who love me just as I am without wondering what I might have been like. The Muscular Dystrophy Foundation. Your support means hope. You can contact us on www.mdsa.org.za. Or telephone number 011-472-9703 for further information. One of the great saints of the 20th century, Blessed Mother Teresa of Calcutta, will be canonized on the 4th of September this year by Pope Francis in Rome. And you could be there. Stand a chance to win this once-in-a-lifetime experience to accompany me, Father Emil, to her canonization in the Radio Veritas Rome and Assisi draw of 2016. The prize this year is valued at nearly 80,000 rand and includes an eight-day pilgrimage to Rome and Assisi from the 2nd to the 11th of September for two people. The prize covers flights, transfers, accommodation, breakfast, dinners and more. Tickets for the draw cost a mere 300 rand and only 2,000 are available, so don't miss out. SMS Rome and your name now to 41809. That's Rome and your name to 41809. And we'll call you back with our banking details. And remember, all the proceeds go to Radio Veritas. SMSs cost one rand fifty and do not constitute an entry.
You're listening to the Jesuit Institute Hour on Radio Veritas, and I'm Frances Correa. We've just been talking to Puleng Matsuneng, and she was talking about some of the impact of praying with Ignatian spirituality in the township context. And towards the end, she was just picking up this idea of hope, of the importance of discovering hope by really recognizing that God is active in the world around us, active in our lives today. One of the things that um, Ignatius gives in his toolbox of prayer to help us to to live more deeply in an awareness of God active here with us is he gives kind of two two styles of prayer. And I'd like to talk a little about both of them now. The one is something that in fancy Ignatian jargon is known as the act of the presence of God, which is really a prayer of of attitude. It's a prayer in which we recognize that God is always paying attention to us. You know, we are not always paying attention to God. I often think that we're a bit like like toddlers. For those of you who've had children or who, who, who have ever had to be around toddlers, you know that the parents of toddler, the toddlers, the primary caregivers, uh, can't take their eyes off a toddler for very long. I, when I had toddlers, I can remember uh, glancing away in the kitchen for two seconds, and when I turned back, my two-year-old daughter had pulled out the kitchen drawers and was already climbing up onto the counter via the drawers. So you, you, you can't leave toddlers alone for very long. You can't even really look away from them for a moment because the instant you do, they do something dangerous because they are fearless. And so the caregivers of toddlers watch them all the time, excepting for when they're asleep, when you can kind of take a breath and have a cup of tea. And God, I think, is a bit like that. God watches us all the time. God is aware of us all the time. But the toddler, and we are really like toddlers, the toddler is not aware of the caregiver all the time. The toddler is in their own world, and they're only really aware of you if they want something from you, if they choose to interact when they turn around and pay attention, or they're aware when you're rescuing them from you know, climbing up onto the kitchen counter by way of the drawers. For us, there is the sense in which I think we, we live our lives and we live a little bit of a split spirituality. We live our lives and we, we think about ourselves as people who occasionally do spiritual things. We're occasionally you know, going to church or stopping to pray or tuning into God in some way or other. And we can, we can think that when we do that, that's when God pays attention to us. But in fact, God is paying attention the whole time. It's only we who are turning our focus backwards and forwards. So what happens when we turn our focus to God? And Ignatius suggests this very strange prayer. He suggests that we stop and we imagine God looking at us. We imagine God gazing at us. God attending to me is the word he uses. God paying attention to me. And then we imagine, well, what does that mean? What does that feel like? How is God attending to me at the moment? For some of us who are very visual, it might be that we imagine God looking at me. Um, some people are more auditory, and it, it might be that you think, well, what might God be whispering in my ear? What is God saying to me? If I stop, if I, if I am still and just listen to God, what might the word God speak into my heart be? And for some of us who are more tactile, it might be the sense, the sensation of God's love surrounding me, perhaps on this cold winter day, like a warm blanket. How do I feel God's attention to me? 
And what's evoked in my heart, in my being, if I do feel God's attention to me? What, what kind of, what is stirred up? How do I feel? God attends to me and my response is? It's quite important here also to, to remember that, that we are thinking about God as revealed to us by the person of Jesus in the scriptures. You know, I always remember reading something that uh, Pope Benedict wrote when he was still Cardinal Ratzinger. And he talked about the importance for the Christian of always knowing that the encounter with God is the encounter is mediated by the person of Jesus in the Gospels, as revealed in the Gospels. And he was quite he was quite clever in that he was talking about how some texts in the scriptures, especially some of the Old Testament texts, can can show an image of God that is less helpful, an image of God that might be slightly more um, aggressive or more punitive. And then he said, but for the Christian, the authentic image of God is always this image of, of Jesus. It's always the image of God as revealed by Jesus. If we're thinking about the Father, we always need to think about the Father as revealed as the beloved Abba of the Son, Jesus. And so when we enter into a prayer exercise like this, we, we enter in trust and in faith, knowing that we are, we are observed, we are attended to by a God who loves us unconditionally, a God who wants to draw us into his embrace, a God who wants to, to hold us, to love us, just as the caregiver of the toddler wants to love them and hold them, even when plucking the irritable toddler off the kitchen counter. My, my, my three-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old at the time, I can remember her screaming with frustration every time I picked her off the counter. All she wanted to do was climb higher and higher. But that didn't lessen my love of her. Her interior sense that I was getting in the way had nothing to do with my love of her. And likewise, even when we are screaming and shouting in God's arms and not wanting to go where God is pulling us, there's something about a sense of God who loves us unconditionally, God who's, who's working with us to the greater good. So there's that sense of, of, being, of being regarded by God. And then in that regard when we are aware of being loved by God, to look at what's going on in our life, to think about, well, what happened today? Huh? I bring to my own awareness and to the awareness of God who loves me the stuff of today. I think about who I spoke to, who I fought with, who I was frustrated by, who I was delighted by, what I did, how I did it. I look at the stuff of my day in this time of intimacy with the Lord, in this awareness of being regarded by God. And in looking at it, something shifts. In looking at it, I kind of try to look at it with the eyes of God. I try to look at my life, at the people in my life, from the point of view of God's vision. And I allow the Holy Spirit to speak to me about what's going on in my life, about what's going on around me with the people around me. 
And so as we come to the end of today's show, as we come to the end of this time together, I'd like to invite you to listen to the music as we go out. And I'm going to just ask you a few questions as we go into that listening process that might help you to also reflect on what's been going on today and how God has been speaking to you in your day, how God attends to you. So if you'd like to begin by just listening to this music. So to begin, just notice this morning, how is God looking at me now? How does God regard me with love now? And let yourself soak up an awareness of God who loves you as you are here this morning doing whatever it is you're doing. over the past 24 hours. Just notice, how did God speak into my life? Were there moments in the last 24 hours where I felt a sense of gratitude, an increase in faith, in hope or in love, where I felt myself naturally filled with the love of God towards God, myself or other people? to God for these moments of being more aware of God active in your life. Now allow yourself to think back over the last 24 hours and notice Memories for which you are less grateful. Moments where you may have felt alienated from yourself, from others, or from God. 
and bring those into God's compassionate gaze for a moment or two. you come to an end, ask God to hold you and to hold your memories as you look ahead to the rest of today and ask God for what it is that you need to live more fully in God's presence today, maybe an increase in faith, an increase in patience. And so we end this morning with that prayer of St. Paul, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the friendship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.